This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm David Stein. When I'm not talking to other people about money on Money for the Rest of Us, I'm stacking Benjamins. from Joe's mom's basement. It's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I am so happy she's finally here. Today in the basement, we welcome the woman who's bad with money, Gabby Dunn. Plus, in our headline segment, Another popular publication disses the Fire Festival. I mean, geez, who's next? Netflix, Hulu, uh, oh wait, what, what's that? Oh, 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 sorry. The, uh, they're dissing the Fire Movement. And meanwhile, over on the Haven Lifeline, we'll answer a question from Kathy about <laughs> bonds. And we'll answer a letter from the mailbag all while you hope that today you'll actually be able to entertain your friends by correctly answering my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who entertain each other by making armpit farts, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G! Did you do that in third grade? Is the question whether or not I've done it since third grade? <laughs> The question is maybe yesterday. Third grade up through yesterday. Have you done it? Yeah. Yes. I remember playing those games with my kids. I remember my kids being like seven years old and going through some of that, you know, stuff you did when you were seven, eight, nine with them, and them thinking I was so badass because I could do armpit farts. And because I knew alternative words to popular songs that were fun with the elementary school crowd. Like Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? Like those kind of songs or yes. songs like Barney. I love you. You love me. Well, it's funny. We talked about Jurassic Park. I remember when Jurassic Park first came out, it was the same time Barney was out and people were taking their kids to see that. Remember? And there oh, was this no, I don't. joke but on that, some. That would be a major mistake. Some FM radio DJ had this great song. Uh, I love you. You love me. I'll eat the whole family. And my kids yeah. thought that was hilarious. Let's make a plan to kill Barney. <laughs> I remember uh, a story about somebody in a theater and the kid in front of them got under the seat and was hanging on to the bottom of the chair, you know, where all the free gum is. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and was just hanging on for dear life and would not come out. Like the mom was trying to get the family out of the theater because they had grossly underestimated what Jurassic Park was going to be about. Hey, everybody, welcome to convincing your elementary school age kids that you are cool as a middle aged dude. <laughs> the podcast. 
I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across the card table from me for another Stacky Benjamin's appearance, it's my good friend, the other guy, or as we refer to him, you know, for brevity, OG. Well, that and it just sounds cool on name tags and stuff. The OG. You know what sounds cool to me? It's when I read a note from you, and there's no spelling errors, OG. What the heck's that all about? Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Grammarly is a communication tool, helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Something, OG, that uh, you know you could work on. Start writing confidently by going to Grammarly.com slash SB to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. Also, thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Stacky Benjamins. With the new year ahead, it's a great time to set goals and to make sure that they're strong ones for you and your business. Making that perfect hire can set your team up for success. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash SB. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to get $50 off your first job post. It's linkedin.com slash SB to get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash SB terms and conditions apply. No terms and conditions for listening to this show, except you got to sit back, relax, and enjoy it because Gabby Dunn on her way to the basement. She's bad with money, OG. Sounds like there could be a song made out of that. Like bad to the bone, bad with money. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe next time. Songwriting is not in your wheelhouse, but okay. Probably not. But moving on to the headlines is in my wheelhouse. So let's go. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins headlines. Our first headline comes to us today from Barron's. Great publication, Barron's. Generally, I like it. I think uh, we have a piece here that proves, again, there's still a lot of people that do not understand the fire movement. Listen to this. The truth about retiring super early is the name of the piece. They don't list who wrote it. For fear of major online retribution. <laughs> yeah. The FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early, has gotten a lot of media hype. But advisors tell investment news that saving like crazy early in a career so you can afford a 50-plus year retirement is extremely difficult to pull off. Number one, I just want to stop as we go through this. Of course it's difficult to pull off. Isn't that what the FIRE movement's all about? It's about pushing yourself to do the extraordinary. I mean, isn't that the fun of this thing is doing something that, that, that fires you up, that sparks joy to quote Marie Kondo and, and Vicky Robin, like do things that push the envelope. That's what it's about. So yes, it would be difficult. Fire-minded millennials, the piece goes on, might save 50% or more of their earnings and live like monks for years to build a nest egg. Let's stop there. That's the piece of the- Sometimes. Sometimes, but that's also the piece of some of the fire movement that I don't agree with because I understand there's a sacrifice to get where you want to go, but you and I have worked with large numbers of people, OG, and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So living on nothing today for a very, very uncertain future- to some degree, I don't love. I've said before that what's the sense of having $20 million in the bank and your kids have never gone to Disney? To me, that seems like a like a little bit of a waste there, but it is about a balancing act. You know, it's about it's about making a decision, I think, that is based on the circumstances that you're in. It's also it's also making an affirmative decision as opposed to just falling into one. Whether or not you agree with saving a whole bunch of money and retiring early or whatever the case may be, or you think it works or doesn't work. 
I think the decision-making process is great because you're saying, okay, I am actively going to forego this in exchange for this other thing that's five years away, and as I, opposed to just going, eh, just save money. Yeah, and I like this idea that that process of saving money is what fills you full of joy. Like, you can yeah. see how much fun some people are having with this, getting to the... And if the journey's fun... And aggressively pushing yourself to save more money's fun, then go for it. But but living living in a way that you really don't want to live for an uncertain future doesn't. Uh, the piece goes on. It says, but the long stock market rallies run into a bumpy period. That means savings might not compound as they did when the fire concept was hatched. I do, I do agree with that. I think there's some people who may have thought that it was going to be easy who may have thought that it was going to be easier than it really was, who now are going, whoa, wait a minute, hold on. I think the concentration of returns largely over the last, you know, let's call it decade or so, that's been pretty much predominantly large U.S. companies is a little bit of a misnomer, I guess, too, because because it was real easy just to buy, you know, an S&P 500 index fund to call today. Yeah. And that's worked for the last decade. But of course, diversification and all the different asset classes tell us that there's, you know, good times and not so great times for different asset classes. And so you may find out that your strategy of all S&P 500, you know, let it ride might not work out as well over the next decade. You know, maybe small companies do better or international companies or who knows what. That's what makes this last uh, several years uncommon, I think, is the lack of asset class rotation like you mm -hmm. usually will see in a market. I mean, go back a hundred years and you'll see asset classes rotating much more quickly and normally than they have the last several years. And a more volatile future, the piece goes on, bodes ill for early retirees because they may wind up taking income from their savings as the market falls. That practice really stunts the compounding effect that makes it possible to fund a long retirement. Quote, for most people, it's going to turn out to be a terrible idea, said Jeffrey Levine, CEO and Director of Financial Planning at Blueprint Wealth Alliance. Young savers might also underestimate future health care expenses, inflation and tax burdens. And then there's the ultimate black swan risk being hit by Cupid's arrow. It's one thing to embrace an austere lifestyle, another to impose it on one's spouse and kids. I want to go through all of this. I want, I want to combat what Mr. Levine says I said, here. There's about 14 things there, but go ahead. I want to combat what Mr. Levine says. Just because somebody's trying to do this big, hairy, audacious goal of save a ton of their money and the fact that it might not work out the way that you want it to work out doesn't make it a crappy idea. Like, I think that's the yeah. worst quote of all time. It's not a bad idea. Yeah. So I want to live within my means and save a boatload of cash and invest it smartly but it might not work. Oh, well, I shouldn't do it. You know what? It might not, it might not work. You know, I'm sending my kids to a really good school in hopes that they go to a nice college and get a good job, you know, but they might not. So screw it. We should just keep them at home. I'm going to slaughter this Michelangelo quote, but I, I know it was Michelangelo who had the quote. The problem isn't setting your goals too high and not achieving them. It's what if you set it too low and you never reach your potential? Uh, that yeah. is not the exact quote, but it's what Michelangelo it's now your about. quote. You, yes. You you can you it can is, now have a quote. It is mine. Feel free to uh bloggers listening, feel free to quote me on that quote. Just make sure you spell my name right. That'd be please. Fantastic. There's a hyphen in between. And don't say I said anything about Michelangelo either, please. No. Yes. Just keep it at me. This idea that it's a bad idea it makes me makes me angry. And sure, 
Are there a lot of people underestimating future healthcare expenses? Yes. Inflation yep. and tax burdens? Uh-huh. I've complained sure. about that before. A lot of people are so negligent in their plan about what inflation means. If you save $250,000 by the time you're 30 and you think you can live on that forever, welcome to my buddy inflation. You can't do it. Even in a trailer in the woods, it's going to be very difficult to do it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Because you know what the cool thing is about retiring at 30, OG? You can go back to work so at 40. Unretire at 40? Right. Yeah. <laughs> You can go, you know what? I made a mistake and you've got, you've got the ability to go back and do something else. And these people that even no plan of continuing to stay retired, they just go, you know what? I'm going to take five years and live off the grid. Fantastic. Nothing wrong with that. A lot of people still don't get that. And you can tell they don't get it in this piece by the very last sentence. Listen to this. A better goal might be called fire light creating the nest egg and quitting your job early, but then switching from a career you don't love to one you do. Uh, I, th- uh, I think that's the point. <laughs> uh, did, did he just define what everybody's trying to do anyway? Here's an, here's an original idea. You know what you guys should do? Save money, get out of the rat race, go do something you really like. A better goal might be to do what, uh, what Vicky Robin and do. Mr. Money Mustache and the whole group are trying to do. That might be better than this fire movement. So silly. Uh, I'll link to this just so, so you can throw your darts at this piece as well as we did. Our second piece comes to us from financialplanning.com. You knew this was coming, by the way. This is written by Harry Terrace. Risk tolerance crumbles as economic angst grows. Which, by the way, I... I have a little quibble with that headline. I don't think there's much economic angst. You look at the economic data, it still looks pretty damn strong. Right. So, no, risk tolerance crumbles as stock market returns jiggle. I don't know, what do you call this? Clients risk tolerance, the piece says, is unraveling as market volatility gnaws away at their nerves and new economic worries cloud the horizon advisors. Okay, economic worries, maybe. Indeed, the appetite for risk dropped sharply for the third month in a row, according to the latest Retirement Advisor Confidence Index, financial planning's monthly barometer of business conditions for wealth managers. The component tracking client risk tolerance slid 5.2 points to 25.8, its lowest level since the index was launched in mid-2012. Readings below 50 indicate a decline, and readings above 50 indicate an increase. So it's all the way down to 25.8 to give you an idea of the scale. Clients are shell-shocked, an advisor says, as worries about a global growth slowdown have rippled through headline-grabbing corporate earnings announcements and stock swings. Combined with signs that the U.S.-China trade conflict starting to have a broad effect on economic activity and the potential for a prolonged government shutdown to introduce another drag, quote, market flux has everyone scared, another advisor says. There's been a noticeable uptick in clients who wish to retest their risk tolerance level, according to one advisor. It's always amazing to me. This is, this is, uh, I don't know how big a downturn this actually is compared to the two biggies that you and I have been through, but the, uh, not on the radar screen, but okay. You mean this, this thing right here, not on the radar screen so far. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of my thought too. And the market's up 15% since Christmas. Every time the market starts to wiggle, 
you see people's appetite to do the right thing goes away. Well, and it's comical because, of course, not our listeners wouldn't do this, but is that the right time to decide that your tolerance for the ups and downs is different it's the, after it's gone down 20%? I don't think so. If you're somebody making that decision now, OG, it means you're, it's because you're an emotional basket case at this point, which by the way, there's nothing wrong of being emotional about your investments, even though we know you're not supposed to, but yeah. being emotional and acting on that emotion, maybe two different things. Well, and, and I think the biggest thing here is just to put safeguards in the way like between you and the thing that makes you feel a little crazy. Cause I think we all know that time is your best ally, right? You want to wait it out. You want to just be okay with the ups and downs, keep on investing. Like we say all that stuff and then we get our statement every month and we pour through it and we go, oh, darn it. I knew I shouldn't have bought that emerging market fund. It's down 20%. Oh, I should probably uh, look at this other one. Well, my fixed income's doing good. Maybe I should put it and you get this temptation. And so I think the best course of action is to trust that the allocation that you decided on when things were good and when you were of sound mind is still the correct allocation now. So put away the statement. Don't look at the brokerage account. Don't, you know... If the nightly news, if you watch it, says that the stock market went up, assume that your money went up. If the stock market says money went down, assume your money went down. And and just eliminate the ability for you to, to bear witness to it. And then I think the other thing that has helped in the past, and, and it helps me too, is just looking big picture at the levels of the stock market. So let's say that you're looking at the S&P 500, and it's not as high as it was September 30th, but... You can go backwards in time and say, well, where is this in the whole scheme of things? And maybe it's at the same level it was as of, you know, December 2017. That's really not that long ago. You really have a great opportunity now to buy things at a year ago prices. And sometimes you might have to stretch that time frame out two years or three years or five years. But uh, kind of put those barriers in place, I think, will will help calm you down a little bit. Just kind of put the statements away if it bothers you. And, um, you know, just put your head in the sand for a little while. I really like this idea during volatile market periods of an investment policy statement where you have everything you just said and you have it in writing. Because I love the idea of taking it out when you're feeling emotional and saying, this is my investment policy. This is the way I get through storms. This is the way I navigate the ship, and I'm mm -hmm. going to continue to follow this. I think that having a checklist is great for a business. I think having a system and a process is how McDonald's got ahead. I think it's the same for investing. I think that um, when it comes to your investment philosophy, like writing it out, what are you going to do when things when things change? And by the way, I I pulled up where we were last at this at this point the the big slide that began at the beginning of December we've as of this recording we've we've recaptured 85% of that and prices were at this level back in May of 2017 so to go right to and then before that they were there in April they were there uh, briefly if you remember in February there was that quick up down 
that the market had in February. So we were there three times of 18, last year. 18, not 17. Of 18. I'm sorry, of 2018. Yeah, so not even not even a year old. Yeah, so we're back buying at uh, 2018 prices. What a deal. And then before February, the time before that was November of 2017. So frankly, when you look at the big run-up, we are looking at the very end of 2017 now. Okay, great. But then, but then we go back to February of 2016. IVV, the iShares product tracking the S&P 500, was trading at just above $180. And today we're at $266 as we record this. Plus all the dividends that it's posted over the last three years, every quarter, like clockwork. Plus all the dividends. Yeah. Uh, almost a half a percent yield on on that product. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. We'll link to this. And it's sad that you can call this every time. Every stinking time anything happens in the market, you see people's ability to once again do the wrong thing sadly happens. Not our listeners, though. Not us. Not us. We will only do the right stuff. Speaking of the right stuff, OG, the right thing to do if you're a business owner is to make sure you've got the right people that work for your company because that all-star lineup can be the difference between success and failure. You always look at successful businesses. I was reading recently, in fact, about a lot of Elon Musk's businesses. And even though Elon is, by all accounts, a really, really smart dude and likes to be the front man, there's some pretty smart people who actually made what Mr. Musk has envisioned become a reality on a lot of different fronts. But if you've tried to hire somebody lately, you know that it's super hard. And with the new year ahead, it's a great time to set goals and make sure it's a strong one for you and your business. Making that perfect hire can help set up your team for success. Where do you find the right person? Well, if you post on a job board and you hope the right person applies, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But why leave it up to chance when you can post your job where people go every day, even if they already have a job? They just want to make new connections, strengthen the connections that they already have with other business people, grow in their career and discover new opportunities like yours. That, of course, is LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but nine out of 10 are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours. With most of the U.S. workforce already on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people people with the right skills, background for your role, who are also ready for something new. It's the best way to find the person who's going to help you grow your business and why a new hire is made every eight seconds using LinkedIn. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash SB. And if you just go to linkedin.com, you'll eventually find how to post a job. But if you use forward slash SB, not only will it take you right there, but you're also going to get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash SB for 50 bucks off that first job post. LinkedIn.com slash SB terms and conditions apply. I think our big takeaways here today is don't let your emotions or the headlines of the day or predictions of economic worry rule your investment philosophy. I think that's a good number one OG. And number two is what's our takeaway here? Before you write about the fire movement or critique it, maybe you should seek to understand. Maybe talk to somebody who's uh, kind of engaged in the whole process to begin with. Call it crazy. 
Coming down to the basement right now is somebody that, while it may seem like at first glance we don't have a lot in common, this woman we absolutely love because of the fact that she's all about having those difficult conversations. And not conversations where everybody's an expert, but conversations where you're not an expert. And we actually have these crazy talks about our money and what we're messing up and where we come from. And we're so happy to have her here today coming down to the basement. Gabby Dunn, the host of the Bad With Money podcast, coming down the stairs right now. And on her way down to the basement, it's Gabby Dunn. How are you? It's about time you got here, Gabby. I know. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, you are my favorite financial guru. Oh, I don't know that I'm much of a guru, but I appreciate it. Well, no, I called you that because I scared wrong. <laughs> I saw you on another interview going. I always love it when people call me a financial guru. Yeah, because the book is called Bad with Money. So I feel like they've really missed a lot of the point. Right. You're going, is this thing on? Does anybody? Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. I think there's not, they don't know what to call it. It's either like you're an expert or why are you here? And it's like, well, I'm here to say that no one knows anything. And they're like, oh, we don't like that. But isn't that half the problem that we think for somebody to talk about money, they have to know something. Right. And half the people that do talk don't know what they're talking about at all. <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. is a very powerful phrase I've found. Well, and it's funny. I was talking to somebody about that earlier today, about being able to say, I don't know, right. makes people believe you even more. Like, like, why do so many people, why are so many people afraid to say, I don't know? Because once you tell me that you don't know something, I'm like, really? So you're not just, you know, filling me full of crap and making me distrust mm-hmm. you, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think like with money, people are really scared to say, I don't know, because it's looked at as this sort of moral and personal and like self-worth failing. It becomes so wrapped up in your emotions and your self-confidence that you want to seem like you know everything just because if some, it's like, I don't know, it's this very weird thing that everyone seems to be jumping to outdo each other or know some sort of secret, or I know this more than you or whatever. And I think saying I don't know is the only way that you can actually find the real information. Plus, Otherwise, it's just noise. Yeah, right. And I never thought that calling into some show where somebody's going to yell at me about my my money (laughs) habits would be any fun anyway. No, it's so wild that the the default, when we think about money shows, the default status is someone yelling at someone else. Yeah. How do we think of that? But I love that you do give Susie Orman, you say that that woman is the goddess of blazers. I love. (laughs) She's, I, I finished the book. So I wrote about her and then she reached out and, and we've talked and she's going to be a guest on season four of the podcast in the spring. And I feel slightly bad, but also like, that's a positive. Like, I'm like, well, what did I say about her? And then I'm like, I'm, I wasn't so mean. You know, but I don't think that's me. Listen, if you can sport a blazer like Susie does, I mean, good, good for her. I know. And I'm a queer woman. So that's all we want is to be able to wear a blazer like that. That's right. Like that's if, all we're looking for. If Because how old is she? Like, I think she was just on our show. I think she's in her 70s or just over, which yeah, is amazing. Always. It's very cute. She's always like, I'm almost 70, which is kind of what I do. Like when I, I turned 30 this year and before I was 30, I would use it as an excuse for things. Like people would be like, do you want to come to this bar at 10 PM? And I'd be like, I'm 30. 
but I like wasn't 30 yet, but I would just say that to not have to do things. So relatable. You must have me confused with somebody who's 28. Exactly. Yes. Uh, I'm 30. So no, people would be like, um, yeah, you're not 30 yet. And also that is not, those don't go. What, how does that entail that you can't go out to a bar? And I'll be like, can't hear you over being 30. Good night. I love the fact that you talk about your own story so much and how you're brutally honest about it and how, which is the way I think more conversations need to be. Cause as a guy that, as a guy that was a financial planner, you know, I got to see behind the scenes and everybody's effing up the same stuff, right? Everybody's messing it up, but nobody talks yeah. about it. We all, we all have to be perfect. But how did you get your beginning? Where did you grow up? I grew up in South Florida but I was like split time a lot between Florida and Georgia. And so in the South, but also in the very Jewish part of Florida, my mom was a breadwinner. She's a divorce and child custody attorney. And then my dad was ostensibly in construction, but mostly a professional addict and gambler. So I had a lot of really interesting money ideas growing up because I thought like women, okay, so women make the money and women are in charge and they are the people that hold it down and uh, men are just a mess and able to do whatever. <laughs> just like, I, I thought that moms are in the family, which I think is the case for, for a lot of people, you know, now yeah, there was a lot of whiplash. You know, I say in the book, there was a lot of stuff where it was like, Oh my God, we can, we can get this. Let's get all this. Let's do all that. Cause we had some money and then like something would happen. My dad would spend it on drugs or, he would gamble or, or something would go wrong. My mom often wasn't very good about chasing payments. Like she would have clients and she would just like let the payments go. And then there would be times where we wouldn't have any money and they'd be like, we don't have any money. And I'd be like, okay, so do we have money or do we not have money? Like, what is the actual truth? You didn't, but I think you, a lot of people, their parents don't tell them the actual truth. You know what I mean? Like when you're growing up, your parents just sort of go, oh, this is a kid. We don't need to explain money to them because they're too young. Well, which is confusing. Well, absolutely. It's confusing, especially when you see your mom taking your sister to Amber Crombie and just <laughs> letting her buy whatever the hell she wants. Then you're like, are you kidding me? Yeah. How um, dated are those references? <laughs> Ghost going down to Abercrombie and BB at the mall. Yeah. I mean, I have more siblings than just her, but she and I are closest in age. And we had very different ideas growing up because my parents would, if my parents didn't say no to her, then she was like, great. That's not my job as the kid to say if they should be saying yes or no. But I was like very neurotic and I would always go, guys, I don't think this adds up. And they'd be like, shush. Like you're not, you're not an adult. You don't tell us what adds up and what doesn't. And my sister was always like, look, if they're saying it's fine, then it's fine. They're the parents. And I was like, yeah, but and I'm like 11 being like, yeah, but I just don't, you know, like I'm trying to do the math. And so I was very anxious. I say I was very anxious and my sister was like, it'll be fine. So we were in the same situation. And when you're a kid, you want to be able to say, oh, my parents know, like, I'm sure they've got it. Like, I'm sure they've got a handle on it. But I just she and she really thought that. And I just never was convinced. <laughs> Do you see the movie Shakespeare in Love? Yeah. I feel like your sister is like uh, the part that Jeffrey Rush played where, you know, they don't they don't have anybody to play Juliet. And Shakespeare keeps coming up to him and going, how's this going to be fine? And that's you. And mm -hmm. it, and your sister is the theater director going, no, it's all just going to work out. It's all just going to magically work out. And it always yeah. seemed, it, I mean, reading through your book, it seems like it all, it always kind of did work out. I know. Well, and then that's how it, it went for me too. I think you learn 
oh, you just kind of get by in a, in a pinch. Like you learn to sort of scrape by. And it seems like all of this stuff was lucky or it happened out of love. But at a certain point, it was like enabling, right? Like yeah. I never had to, I would always be like at my last, last resort. And then I would somehow get 50 bucks and then I'd be like, I'm good. And then I would never think about I, the problem that had just happened. Like I would always try to be draining the canoe with a thimble. Like I would never, <laughs> like as soon as I would go, oh my God, I should really change my life. Like I can't believe this is how I live. I'm so stressed out all the time. This is terrible. Oh, I found $50. I'm fine. What was I upset about anyway? And then like would just completely forget that I probably needed to make bigger changes. <laughs> That's so you say, I want to quote you here. You say in order to start deconstructing and fixing your own ways of thinking about money, you need to dig into the past and see what you were taught consciously and subconsciously, which is exactly what we're talking about here. Those mm -hmm. messages may be burrowed deep and they may at one point have protected you, but ask yourself, are they still servicing your best interest? And it seems like you totally do this. Was it hard for you to write this, I guess, naked's the right word, about your grandparents, about your parents, about your dad, about your mom, about your sister owing you money, about yeah. Amber, Amber Crombie? I was surprised you didn't write about how all that – I couldn't walk into Amber Crombie because of all that, that damn perfume. I'd walk oh. into an Amber Crombie, and I felt like I was going to die. But that was the early 2000s, so there were these clear markers of class – and success like in my school you know it was like if you had very straightened hair and a tiffany bracelet and a polo shirt from abercrombie you were a rich kid so i would try <laughs> this is so sad but i would go into abercrombie and see what was on sale and then i would be furious if the thing that i could afford didn't say abercrombie on do you know what i mean like if the shirt didn't yeah. have the label or the logo because i was like i need people to see the logo yeah now it's like i need like a plain shirt that can go with multiple things. I, but like then I was like, I need this to say Abercrombie as big as possible. Right. Do you ever worry that that's just you aging? Like I saw my parents and at some point they just didn't give a shit anymore. You know, they're yeah. just like, yeah, I don't need Abercrombie anymore. Well, no, because my girlfriend works in fashion. So she's very into brands and stuff, but she's more into the quality of the clothes. Like she'll be like, oh, this is expensive because it'll last forever. Right. And she's normally right. Yeah. I yeah. I was doing sort of a fast fashion thing of like, I'll get this shirt, it'll I'll wear it twice, it'll completely fall apart, whatever. Yeah. But that's like also not really ethic. There's a whole episode there that's not really ethically sustainable. But I just was trying to keep up basically with these other kids with all these sort of markers of things. And it was very obvious. I mean, it's probably the same now, right? Where like if you have AirPods, if you have you know, Air Force Ones, if you have whatever, like there's markers. I mean, we had school uniforms and you could still tell who was wealthy based on their makeup or their jewelry. You said even who could stay after school for tutoring for the yeah, who big had time. Yeah. For the big to do multiple extracurriculars whose parents paid for SAT tutors, who's, you know, it kind of begins to affect your academics too. Right. Cause it's like, how often can you study how, you know, you're applying to colleges. Here's all my extracurriculars that I've done. But I talked to this one uh, college counselor and she was saying that college counselors are a bit wary now where they'll see like someone who had just time to do a million extracurriculars and they'll be like, oh, okay. Like they're sort of hip to it now. <laughs> yeah. Now our uh, salutatorian of my kids high school it mm -hmm. was in like 37 different extracurriculars. And my dad even turned to me at my twins graduation and went, yeah, there's no way she really did all that. Like there yeah. is, there is no way it was just, it was so for the college and, uh, I don't know, it produced this big eye roll. So I hope they're onto it. 
Yeah. I think if you write like an essay about your retail job or about the, you know, how you take care of your nieces and nephews or whatever it is, stuff that isn't just like my mission trip to Nicaragua or whatever. They're like, yeah, no, we understand people have lives. But when I was young, I didn't think that they did. I was like, you have to look like this and you have to be so perfect and have all these extracurriculars. And I think also it's just people are a little bit less naive now. I read some article, like kids are fully making up their college essays. It's full fiction. This thing happened to me. And I'm like, oh, my God, why wasn't I smart enough to do that? Yeah, but still, you talked about ethics earlier. I know. I know. But it's like so great. I'm like, oh, my God, they're just of course, like if you're like sitting there going, oh, what am I going to write about? And then you can just wholly make it up. Oh, my God. I was that when I was younger. I would totally have said I was a pirate or, you know, or maybe like a Schwann's ice cream dude or something, you know. Just be like the night that I was robbed, but I saved everyone in the store. Like, just make it up and then look like an amazing person. Right. And I didn't have my Spider-Man mask and I still exactly. saved everybody. The end. Fantastic. Exactly. Yes. Oh, I'm too, I was too good of a kid. Let me ask you a question about going to a private school because I, I had, I had a similar background. I mean, a lot different background. But similar in the way that I went to public school and then I went to private school. And so we had a lot of those same markers. So I found myself nodding my head. And I feel like, did that change your viewpoint because you were able to see these kind of half hidden status symbols and also kind of in the other way? being a kid that didn't come up for money, see how kind of the other half live. Like some of my friends had houses that had names. And when I you, couldn't believe when you would drive into those kids' homes and there was like a gate in the front for the cars and shit. I was like, what is happening? Yeah. When I, the first times I went to some of these kids' houses, it was like, I don't think I was a kid who's had friends over. Like I was the kid who went to the other people's houses. I don't know if that's because of my dad or because of like, we just didn't have like a big one or whatever, but you know, there's that friend who always has people over. And then there's that friend that's always at other people's houses and I'm the second one. That was totally us. Uh, Yeah. And so I couldn't believe some of this stuff. I mean, even like, you know, it was a Jewish school. So, and I'm Jewish, but like, you know, the amount of nose jobs that happened right around sophomore year or like, all these things that I was so surprised and I don't know that I would have cared about or, or like, I don't think I took a second to be like, do I like these clothes or do I like these bracelets or do I want my hair to be straight? I think I was just like, that's what you got to do. Like, I don't think it was any sense of individuality of like, Oh, well, is this what I actually enjoy wearing or doing? But did that make you aspire to, I mean, clearly you aspired to be a part of that when you tell the story about your mom taking an iron and ironing your hair for you so -hmm. that your hair can be straight. I'm like, oh my goodness, thank God I'm a guy. (laughs) Yeah, he would lay back on the ironing board so she would iron it with a, a clothing iron because we didn't have a hair straightener. And that probably wasn't good, but, uh, for my hair, but yeah, like I definitely wanted to be like the kids around me. But then, you know, I say in the book that at a certain point, rebelliousness takes hold. And then I kind of swung hard the other way. And I became this artsy kid who was like, money means that you're evil. And like, off, man. And like, just became very like, you know, I talked about the musical rent. 
but both of those money scripts, by the way, are not good. Like the, the aspiring no matter what and the person who's like, money's evil and anyone who has money is a bad person and I'm virtuous for being poor and, and like no matter what I'm actually doing in my life, like I'm a better person because I don't even care about money, man. So it was like these two extremes that kind of happened just throughout the four years of high school where like in the beginning I was trying really hard to measure up and then by the end I was just like, I don't give a shit. My jeans are held together by safety pins because I believe in poetry or whatever the fuck I was talking about. It's so funny. And here's here's what I love. And I hate that I have to wrap it up just because of our format, <laughs> because I could talk about this stuff all day. I was just so enthralled. But I love the fact that in the book, you take what you did, like as an example, going to school. And then you talk about the way you probably should go to school, which might have been a little different. And then you mm-hmm. talk about your internship, which is that'd be a whole nother podcast episode, which was phenomenal. Like how to do that better. And I love how you take your life and then apply it to these bigger causes. And sometimes they're big social causes. I mean, they're these big uh, things that we should all be thinking about, but you make it intensely personal. And I love the fact that you made it so that the whole time I said to myself, we should all do this. And you start mm-hmm. off that way with money scripts and uh, man, Gabby, I wish that more people would talk as honestly about money. Cause I think that once, like once you do it, more people do it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't feel like I could write a book about money without exposing my warts too. Like, I don't feel like you can tell other people what to do unless you come clean about your own stuff. I don't ever want to come off as aspirational more than relatable. I didn't want people to read it and be like, I need to be like this girl. I wanted it to be like, okay, I am already like this girl. So now what does she have to say? Because I don't like listening to people where I'm like, well, you don't know where I'm coming from. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I wanted to share my stuff so that people would feel comfortable looking at the book and thinking about their own stuff. The book is called Bad With Money and you can get it everywhere. Yeah. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the next season of Bad With Money. What's going on? It's moved podcast networks. So it was on one network and now it's jumped to mid-roll and it's coming in spring 2019. So we recorded one episode uh, and then we released a teaser, which you can listen to uh, now. And then it'll be, we'll have more. I'm actually going to do a call right after this about when it's coming out. (laughs) Well, too bad you got nothing going on. I feel bad for you. Uh Not busy. Gabby Dunn, thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And today I have a doozy of a question for you. I was just talking to Joe's mom about the concept of duration. Who knew that was a financial term? I mean, I've been using it in phrases like for the entire duration of the Star Trek Discovery series. And what duration would you like your sizzler special steak cooked, Mr. Neighbor Doug? And a couple of other sentences we won't get into here. But anyway, here's a question. When it comes to bonds, what does the word duration mean? I'll be back with the answer in just a moment. I can't say enough about the power of great writing when it comes to a negotiation or when it comes to how you feel about people. I think some people inadvertently make the mistake of thinking that a few spelling errors doesn't really affect the way people feel about them. And it does. 
which is why I'm so happy that Grammarly supports Stacking Benjamins. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps you and I improve our writing so it's mistake-free, clear, and effective. Grammarly encourages everyone, even the best students and top pros, to use Grammarly to do their best work and accomplish even more of their goals. Grammarly is a writing assistant, makes you look and sound smarter. You can start off the new year here by easily improving yourself and your communication at school, work, and almost anywhere with Grammarly. They help people show their best self through writing and are available across platforms, including online browser extensions. So I use the Chrome extension, which automatically makes not just writing errors, but syntax errors and questionable sentence structure come to the forefront in my writing. But it's not just on browser extensions. It also can be a desktop editor and a mobile keyboard checker. Grammarly is available on multiple browsers, Chrome, as I mentioned before, Firefox, Safari, Edge, and platforms, iOS, Android, Windows, Mac. Their free product reviews critical spelling and grammar. And Grammarly Premium looks out for spelling grammar plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions like a business proposal, academic essay, just a casual blog post or a note, whatever it might be. I use Grammarly Premium while I like the free and the free one gave me way, way, way more than the spell check did. The premium helps me a ton in my professional writing every day. I'll give you an example. I generally don't use enough commas. I'm the opposite of most people I see when they make spelling mistakes. They have way too many commas, commas where commas don't belong. If you take a breath and you pause naturally, maybe that's a spot to add a comma. Not in the middle of a sentence where you're just rambling on. Unfortunately, apparently I ramble on too much because Grammarly shows me commas and I go, yeah, you're right. It does sound better if I put a comma there. Head to Grammarly.com slash SB to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's Grammarly.com slash SB for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. Hey there, trivia nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, back with your delightful trivia answer. Here was the question. What does the word duration mean when it comes to bonds? Well, because bonds are a loan, if you said it's the time until the issuer pays you back, unfortunately, you were thinking of maturity, something I need a little more of. When it comes to bonds, however, duration actually measures the volatility of a bond. So if interest rates rise or fall 1%, how does that affect the price of the bond in the marketplace? Duration is expressed in years. So a bond with a duration of two will have a lower volatility than one with a duration of five. See that? You nearly learned something today. <laughs> Just don't tell these guys that. Okay, I mean, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, here they come. Here they come. Keep it a secret. See ya. Why is he scurrying away from the table? Mm. I don't know. That's strange. Let's throw out Dave and Lifeline. We're going to tackle some of life's most important questions. <laughs> hey, that's Doug. That's strange. All right, let's move on. Same stuff, different show. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency put what you value first. After my recent trip to the Grand Caymans, I would say uh, the fire movement is top of my list. <laughs> <laughs> Which is your loved ones in your time, right? Things that spark joy. I would love there to spend... Is time with my loved ones more spend more time doing the stuff you love and less time buying life insurance that's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash haven life now to get your free quote 
Their application process is simple online. You get an instant coverage decision. Their prices are affordable. All policies issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, who's more than 160 years old. Imagine the uh, candles on that birthday cake from Mass Mutual, huh? 160. Mm-hmm. Let's say hi to our friend Kathy today. We'll throw out the lifeline to her. Hey, Kathy. Hey, Joe and OG. This is Kathy, and I have a question mainly about asset allocation. I am 50 years old, looking to retire at about age 60. I have uh, 2.3 million total. I've got 66% stocks, 26% bonds, and 8% in short-term reserves, uh, which is basically a cash emergency fund. And my question for you is, as I listen to the show, you guys don't seem very keen on any type of bonds, you know, bond ladders or bond funds, but wondering for someone my age uh, who's, you know, kind of looking to retire in 10 years and I seem to have uh, enough in my accounts, do you think that someone in my situation should have more inequities or is this asset allocation reasonable? I don't want to take on more risk than I have to. And I've always learned that bonds are kind of a ballast for the portfolio. So love to get your opinion. Hope I learned something. That's a great question, Kathy, because, oh, gee, Kathy probably is right that, I mean, it all depends on her lifestyle, right? How much she wants to spend a month. But let's say that she does have enough, then do bonds come forward as a as a way to just, you know, ride her portfolio? I think that there's a couple of different ways to look at this. If you've got two and a half million dollars today, you've got 10 years until you retire. It's safe to say that that's going to turn into maybe 5 million by the time you retire, if you're going to work another 10 years, not including any savings. So the question obviously is, is that enough? You know, I think a lot of people would say $5 million is enough money to retire on. The reality, of course, is that it's a function of how much money you spend. If you're used to living on half a million dollars a year, I can tell you that 5 million is not even in the ballpark. Well, let's just assume that you've been a good saver, you live within your means, and you plan on spending something less than $200,000 a year in retirement. I think that it's totally natural to assume that, hey, when I get to retirement, I need to be conservative, right? I need to be, you know, I can't take any risk anymore. And we use those terms like that. But the reality is, is that, and Kathy said this, for someone as old as I am, I don't know. I don't think 50 is that old, Joe. You're welcome. But more importantly, in the kind of time horizon of what's left, you still have the better part of half of your life. You know, a couple age 65 today has got a one in four chance of one of them living to be 95. So you got a pretty good shot because you're not 65, you're 50. So, you know, you start doing the math on that. The average is going to be continuing to increase. So I think you look at 50 as being, I've got half of my life left to go. I've got to get to 100. So at 60, you need money for the year that you turn 60. You retire and you need money that year. I get that. And you need money for 61 and 65 and so on and so forth. But you also need money that's for 75 and 87 and 94. And and you've got to account for the fact that those later years may be the really, really, really high expense years if there's assisted care involved or something like that. And so the only place that you can get inflation-adjusted positive returns over a 30 or 40-year time horizon is the equity markets. And by equity markets, by the way, I mean, that could be equity in 
in real estate because REITs over the long term do that. I mean, sure. you know, now people are introducing collectibles like we talked about before, and there's some pitfalls there, like being able to cash in your real estate or cash in your Van Gogh to get at your money, but historically some. So when you talk equities, I just want to make sure people knew how broadly we were talking. Sure. Now, there is a point I was going to say that I think, you know, at some level you could say, well, if I've got $100 million and I need to live on 200000 a year, can I just put that all in treasuries and not worry about anything and just take the interest and be happy? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. My counter to that would be how much more good can you do if you continue to invest the way that you should based on your time horizon? Meaning, as you get close to retirement, you need some money for the first year of retirement, the second year, the fifth year, but you also need money that's invested for longer term time horizons, 10 years away and 20 years away and 30 years away and 40 years away. So if that's the case, how much more could you do for the people or places or things that are important to you down the line? No, no doubt in my mind that if you live a kind of normal lifestyle, I don't know what that is, but, but you know, let's just say a regular person lifestyle. If you've got 5 million in the bank, it'll last. And if you have a 50% stock and 50% fixed income allocation, it'll last. If you have 60, 40, 65, 35, it's going to last. If you have a hundred and zero, you know, if you all stock, now you have to do something else because you have to think of what are the downsides to that? And so what we advocate, of course, is having at least a year, preferably two years of spending in cash on the day you retire, because then that gives you the opportunity to be fully invested, take full advantage of the market upsides. But then when the market does go down, you've got a reservoir of cash that you can draw from for a long period of time where you can just let your stock portfolio do whatever it's got to do to recover. What about now, if that gives you too much sleepless nights, then you got to introduce a little bit of fixed income. Cause yeah. I was going to say, because at the end of the day, this isn't a game about, <laughs> it's a game between your ears more than anything. And you have to, you have to figure out where is your breaking point and then build around that so that you don't ever get to it because that will kill you more than all equity exposure, all fixed income exposure, whatever. Yeah, that's definitely the key, Kathy. It is much more about you and introducing bonds will reduce volatility. But the biggest issue to OG's point, bam, in financial planning right now that I read when I read financial planning stuff, but I'm not reading enough of when you read popular press stuff or listen to podcasts about finance or whatever is longevity. Like the academians who are on top of this stuff much more than Joe Blogger is, is they're worried about you living to be 130 years old. And that is a monster risk that the more money you put in bonds, the harder it's going to be to make sure that you don't outlive your portfolio, no matter how big it is, becomes. And especially because of the rising cost of healthcare, and not just in the marketplace today, which I think we said on Monday is a dumpster fire, but but uh, but just over time, because you're not going to be as healthy at 80 as you were at 70 as you were at 60. I mean, it just, it's, it's, there's, well, you know, Fidelity has said that starting at age 65, you need to set aside a quarter million dollars. I think they've updated it to say $300,000. You just need in an account to pay all of your healthcare costs out of pocket. And of course, most of those happen in the later part, but you're right. We are very close to 
being, it's very close to being acceptable to plan to live to 120 now. I mean, if you kind of skate where the puck's going a little bit, if you look at mortality tables, they used to end at 100. And starting in the year 2002, I think, is when they increased them to 120. Insurance products used to end at age 100. Now they end at 100, age 120. I don't know that it becomes super prevalent <laughs> that like everybody you know lives to be 119 or 136 or whatever. But I think that it's going to happen. And if it does, who is it going to happen to? Is it going to happen to the guy that worked outdoors his whole life and barely scraped by and retired at 70 because he had to because he had a health condition? Or is it going to happen to the person who was an executive who saved a whole bunch of money, retired at 55 with $10 million in the bank? You know, and can and, and arguably can afford better health care and all that sort of stuff. Of course, the, the person who does the right thing with money also does tends to do the right thing with their health and, you know, all that other sort of stuff. So I think there's going to be a correlation there. So the, the risk isn't that you have too much volatility. I think you have to think about it. Like you said, Joe, that the risk is, a, is instead that you live too long. And if you get too conservative too early, your capital is going to start declining at an ever increasing pace just to keep up with that, you know, rising cost of buying milk. You know, it's a great question. Thanks for the question, Kathy. I love where that question comes from. And by the way, congratulations on all the saving she's done. Nice work. Yeah, not bad. Five, <laughs> two and a half million is not quite enough to start on, but it'll, or not, not quite enough to get you home, but it's a nice start. Not, not, not to get to the Susie Orman number. Got a, you're yeah. halfway to the Susie. Well, if Orman. you don't do anything else, I mean, it'd be five million in ten years, right? There, there's double that seven percent. Yeah. There, there she goes. Uh, we also get letters down here in the basement, and uh, today from the mailbag, we're going to answer Braden's letter. Braden says, I'm 22 years old, fresh out of college, and have a new full-time job. I'm a little lost, though. I've started contributing to my 401k with a match from my employer, and I want to start investing more. The problem is I don't know where to start. Any suggestions for a young fellow like me? Thanks in advance. Thanks, Braden, for the question. I love how Kathy's talking about landing the plane and Braden's talking about taking off. I like the mm-hmm. scope of these letters. Yeah. Well, when it comes to putting this all together kind of at the at the beginning part, everybody is really interested in solving Kathy's problem because it's a cool problem to have. I've got two and a half million. How do I invest it? You know, or how do I allocate my investments a little bit better or whatever the case may be? Even when we're in our 20s, we want to do the cool stuff that we do in our 50s. It just sounds like a better experience than boring stuff like building a cash reserve (laughs) or paying off your student loans uh, or making sure that you don't get into debt to begin with. And so where do we start in this whole process? It's all about making sure that you build the foundation the correct way first. Now, you didn't say anything about this other stuff, but I think it's really important. If you don't have a cash reserve, you need to put a cash reserve in place first before you start investing. A lot of people would say that's three months of expenses or six months of expenses. Pick a nice round number. And if it takes you a year to save it or two years to save it, so be it. That'll insulate you from the risk of life and then make it so that your investments when you start will be able to continue. So a real big problem is you get started on the investing track. You're dumping money in your 401k and your Roth IRA and your brokerage account and then life happens and you need to put a thousand bucks of tires on your car. Joe knows about that. And then, and then you have to invade your 401k. Or I, I just had a client call and say, hey, how long have I been contributing to my Roth? I need to take it out. 
I'm like, for what? Oh, because I I was over budget on my home remodel project and I've got $20,000 in debt now that I didn't count on. Well, you don't want to take that at 35 out of your Roth that you've been contributing to for 20 years or 10 years, you know? So build a cash reserve, work on eliminating all of your consumer debt if you have any. After that, I like the process of contributing into your 401k to the company match. Then I like going back to the Roth IRA and filling that up. Then I like going back to the 401k and maxing that out. And after that, then you're looking at things like making sure you get a brokerage account and that sort of thing. So I think you've got quite a checklist of things, probably, if you're like most people just getting started before you get to some really esoteric stuff. But but I would go cash reserve, pay off debt, 401k to the company match, max the Roth, then go back to max out the 401k. And after you've done all that, you're probably saving, you know, $25,000 a year and then put the rest in your regular investment account and off you go. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I called a stockbroker because I had no idea where to invest, what to do. And uh, luckily I got a hold of the right person because the dude gave me the same advice that OG just gave you, Braden. And you know what it sounded like when I was your age? It sounded boring and it sounded frustrating. And I go back to a lot of the troubles that I had with money in the early days. Had I built that foundation first, I could probably reclaim 15 years of my financial life. Mm-hmm. The best way to solve problems is before they happen. And I went through a whole lot of grief because I thought that broker was boring as hell and went now. Yeah. When do I get to do credit default swap derivative, uh, <laughs> you know, futures trading on corn? When, when, when is that in the process? I just read an article about somebody who had built a portfolio. I don't remember the size of it, but I thought it was maybe 5 million had retired by doing it in ETFs and index funds and contributing, you know, the maximum to the 401k, just real boring stuff. And then he retired and got bored with being bored. Yeah. And so he started, just took a little bit of his portfolio to do some option trading. And then the worst thing happened. He made half a million dollars doing option trading in a year. And the hook and was so now, and, and so now he's this whiz kid option trader at 55 and um, promptly went through something like $3 million before he finally said, okay, I got to stop. Oh, no. And, you know, arguably with $2 million bucks, you can still put bread on the table. But um, that experience will, will change the trajectory of your family's financial future for generations, you know, so do the boring stuff. Thanks for the question, Braden. If you've got a question for the show, head to stackybenjamins.com. At the top of the page, you'll see the questions for the show tab. Uh, If you click there, you'll see all the ways you can interface with us. Of course, Kathy's taking home the swag, the greatest money show on earth t-shirt where uh, Braden got his question answered. See how that works. But for both options, just head to our website. Also, by the way, for everything we talked about, uh, head to our website. I'm sure Doug's going to go over that in a second. Uh, one thing, not directly on our website, you have to actually use the link I'm about to tell you. If you are putting your financial planning team together and you'd like to talk to OG and the team about joining your team, your financial planning team, here's the link for that, stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG, and that will take you uh, directly to OG's calendar and his uh, team. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? 
So, what did we learn today? First, take a cue from our discussion today with Gabby Dunn. Talk more about how you began your money journey, about your parents and early years. It'll help you realize the scripts you use to make decisions today, and maybe fight against ones that might not be healthy. Second, thinking about lowering your risk level as the stock market drops? Yeah, don't do that. Write out an investment policy statement and stick to it during good times and bad. Your goals down the road will thank you. But the big lesson? Don't laugh at the way Joe's mom and Gertrude shovel the walk. That is, unless you want to shovel it yourself. (laughs) But that, that thing she does when she twists with the shovel. Oh, my God. It's just so damn funny. Special thanks to Gabby Dunn for joining us today. You can buy Bad With Money wherever books are sold. Stacking Benjamins supports independent booksellers. So if you want to support the show and buy independent, use our link stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Powell's and they'll give us a little thank you for sending you their way. Stuck at Amazon? We've got you there too. On our show notes page, click the link there to help support the show. This show was created by Joe Saul produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just noticed it's just as dark and damp down here as Joe's soul. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Have you ever asked yourself what wrong turn you made in your life that you ended up down here listening to us? So a story that uh, going back to my kids and teaching them maybe the wrong stuff as a parent, we took a trip to the Blue Ridge Parkway when my kids were, I don't know, maybe seven or eight and we went hiking. By the way, if you've never taken your kids hiking and you want to, I got some great advice for you that was given to me. This is kind of the hand-me-down OG. Take your kids out for like a short one-hour hike and here's what's going to happen. The first 20 minutes, they're just going to bellyache. That's all they're going to do. I don't want to walk. I don't want to. And then about 20 minutes into it, once they realize the inevitability of, yes, we are going to walk as a family and we're going to have some fun out here, maybe have a picnic at about the half hour mark, whatever it might be. Next thing you know, we're walking through these beautiful woods having discussions. So we got to the point with these introductory hikes around the area 
that we did a trip up the Blue Ridge Parkway, camped some nights and stayed in cheap motels the other nights. And they were the old kitschy motels, by the way, that you had back in the day. You know, these, I remember we stayed in this one room that was like a 1950s A-frame motel look, just awesome. But around the campfire one night, I taught my kids this uh, song, this kind of inappropriate song that I learned in the Cub Scouts called God Bless My Underwear. You familiar with God Bless My Underwear? No, but please sing it for me. I'm sure it's very appropriate. It's the same tune as uh, God Bless America. Uh Uh-huh. But it's God bless my underwear, my only pair. Stand beside it and guide it from the washer to the dryer to my drawer. From the washer to the dryer to my clothes basket to my drawer. God bless my underwear, my only pair. And so I taught my kids to sing this. My son was young enough, and he used to do this belly laugh when he was seven or eight. I miss that. He, he was laughing so hard. Cheryl had gone to bed early, and he was falling off the little log that we had sitting next to the campfire. He was laughing so hard. He thought it was so funny. So we're walking down a section the next day of the Appalachian Trail. And my son decides to, uh, my son decides to start singing God Bless My Underwear. And he's, morale was very high that day, OG. And he's singing it at the top of his lungs. God Bless My Underwear, my only pair. Stand beside it and guide it from the washer to the dryer to my drawer. And he's kind of marching ahead of us a little bit. I'd say about 20 minutes later, it was longer than I thought it would have been, this grizzled hiker clearly doing a much longer part of the Appalachian Trail than we're doing. You know, we found some intersection, parked our car and walked like half an hour in, half an hour back. But this dude is just weather-worn, huge pack. He's got both of the... Um, both. He's of, a through hiker. Yes. He's on his, he's on his way. He's got both of the uh, poles, the hiking poles mm-hmm. that he's using to steady himself over long periods of time. And he said, he said, I have to give it to you parents. And I just kind of look at him. Very first thing he said, I got to give it to both of you parents. I said, yes, you are raising just the most patriotic kids because I could hear your son singing God bless America all the way down the mountain. And that just fills my heart with joy. You're like running up to Nick going, Nick's on the underpants. <laughs> Luckily, Nick just smiled. And uh, what that hiker will never know is that, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Very patriotic. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all the 
of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.